Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the, from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where professional golfer Jason Duffner will wear hats supporting the New Orleans Saints and reference the infamous no-call that cost the black and gold a spot in the Super Bowl last year. Duffner's in town for the Zurich Classic at TPC Louisiana in Avondale and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where bike share company Gotcha will deploy 100 electric bicycles in North Little Rock beginning in June. Helmets are recommended, but not required under Arkansas law. Tonight, we'll continue our four-part discussion of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Wesley Cook, a.k.a. Mumia Abu-Jamal. Tonight, we'll talk about Officer Daniel Faulkner, then move on to a discussion of the pretrial proceedings, jury selection, and finally, Abu Abu Jamal's 1982 murder trial. We'll also briefly talk about the issue raised in Abu Jamal's direct appeal and the outcome of that appeal, which affirmed his sentence and conviction. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Yeah, I saw something. It's interesting you mentioned the bike share thing because I saw something about that. Of course, you know, gotta love, uh, gotta love Arkansas uh, being behind the times on the whole uh, helmet thing. But, uh, but uh, I also saw the infamous no call hat, and I find it quite hilarious. Everybody's still trolling. (laughs) Roger yourself for that one. We can hold a grudge, let me tell you. Oh, I can tell. I can tell. <laughs> so, the whole that came through on my Twitter feed. Now, I think that Zurich might have kind of put the kibosh on that idea because I found a couple of interviews. The The tournament starts... Thursday and ends on Sunday, but they're mm-hmm. they're doing some events there uh, that started on Monday, and in the uh, videos I saw, he was wearing a Pelicans hat or a hat for uh, you know Titleist or some other sponsors. Uh, so Zurich right. may have said no, you can't do that. 
But right. um, so, right, and I I won't hold him against him. I won't hold it against him that he's from Alabama. Lisa, I want you to be proud of me. I've got something to contribute to the development case. Oh, good. Okay, so uh, I don't know. I know you pay attention to KATV up here, um, but but it's kind of a it's not a single case update. But I don't know if you saw where the state of Arkansas the trial on the lethal injection protocol is uh, set to begin this week at some point. So definitely something our people that were listening to those episodes might want to keep their eye on. Okay. All right. Yeah, I had I had missed that. I knew there was a challenge, but it I as I understood it, the one that was raised in 2017 was dismissed. I guess maybe some of the death row inmates got together and and filed a new petition. I'll have yeah, to look that up tomorrow. Give me one second, and I will uh, look it up for you while you're updating the cases here. Okay. So there aren't too many. (laughs) There aren't too, too many uh, updates. Uh, Adnan Syed, the Maryland Court of Appeal, denied his motion for reconsideration. They Mm -hmm. are not going to review their March 8th order opinion ruling that vacated the trial court and court of special appeals decisions that granted a new trial. So um, the attorneys for Adnan Syed are saying that they're going to file a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court, they have 90 days, which would make their writ due sometime in late June. Okay. Uh, because okay. they have 90 days from the date the reconsideration was denied. Um, the uh, Also, just it's not on my list, but Jeffrey McDonald, if he's going to take a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court, he's got to do it by May 20th. Okay. And he hasn't done it yet. Now, Lisa, I I don't know if uh, this is a trustworthy site or anything. I couldn't find the KATV story. This was the first one I just clicked on. Uh, It was April 22nd. It says uh, it said that uh, it's a federal trial and it's set to begin, I guess, uh, today or yesterday. Give me one second. Okay. It looks like it starts Tuesday, and it's uh, brought to brought by current uh, a federal lawsuit by death row inmates has renewed a court fight over whether the Senate of Arkansas uses for lethal injection causes torturous executions two years after the state race to put eight convicted killers to death in 11 days before a previous batch of the drug expired. Uh, I do remember one of the uh, lawyers said that the um, the drugs do not put them to uh, sleep as should be done, but he likened it to being set on fire. Um, yeah, but they, you know, one of the problems that they have in uh, – 
in these challenges is a lot of times when someone is actually executed, they won't allow an autopsy to be done. Really? Now, that's kind of odd. To measure the, because... the level of drugs in the system and, you know, those things. Because what the lethal, lethal injection protocol, especially states that have moved to the single drug, is basically they're giving you an, overdo- an overdose of an opiate. Well, the reason they're not I using pancromium, they're not using the, the pancromium bromide or the uh-huh. the uh, uh, the the paralytic. They're just doing an overdose of a sedative. The reason why um, I say though that it's kind of odd to me is because it, uh, on the death certificate, it's actually ruled a homicide by the doctor. Correct. That varies from state to state, uh, but most states actually, if they do rule it a homicide, they put legal execution or uh, judicial execution or something along those lines. I mean, yes, it may be a homicide because it yeah. is brought about by man. Uh, mm-hmm. It's brought about by means other than accidental or natural. Mm-hmm. Or suicide, but right. it's still a a judicially legal punishment for a crime okay. committed by the individual. Well, obviously, I know it's not. You know, some people would argue this, but obviously, I know it's not literally a murder. But I thought in certain states, if a uh, death was ruled a homicide, you had to get – it was, like, legal. You had to get a, uh autopsy done. No. And most of okay. these inmates even will file court proceedings mm-hmm. to prohibit the jurisdiction, the coroner, for whatever county the prison is in from performing an autopsy, even before the execution. Okay. Um, but the, so far, none of these challenges have been successful. Okay, okay. I was just, and they've I gone all the way up to the Supreme Court. And, and the federal court will be bound. If, if the grounds are the same as the ones raised in that, Kentucky case, I think it was Bayes, mm-hmm. then the federal court's not going to give him relief. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, you know, what we can do is I think um, somewhere down the line we can look at those lethal injection challenges mm-hmm. and look at the issues they raised and the evidence they presented and something people I think a lot of people don't understand or realize is they are going to bear the burden of proving that their position is correct. They're going to be the ones that they're going to have to prove that people are not rendered unconscious. They can continue saying it. They can continue saying it's like being set on fire, but Unless they go strap themselves down 
and get the sedative and then get the other drugs and then are brought back to testify, they don't know. They're speculating. Well, and I was about to say, I can imagine it would be difficult. You know, obviously you could subpoena the media witnesses and things like that, but I can imagine it'd be well, pretty difficult to get no, a witness because the, to testify. Well, no, because the, the, the media witnesses, the family witnesses, uh, the convicted mm-hmm. killer's family's witnesses, all those people can witness the same thing. But then what they're going to report are their interpretations of what they think they saw. True. Good point. And so I've seen other, you know, I've seen cases where um, the prison and some of the media witnesses reported they closed their eyes, they started snoring, the snoring stopped, and then they were declared 10 minutes later. And I've seen another reporter, an anti-DP reporter, in the same room, in the witness room, that they ride, that they groan, that they suffer, they appear to be suffering greatly. And so, you know, it's, it's interpretation. It's, it's interpretation and speculation. Okay. Okay. Well, definitely, I just wanted to make mention of that because I looked at our uh, outline here and I saw updates and I was like, wait, I just saw that case. Yeah, uh, I saw that and I was like, I wonder if Lisa knows about this. No, I had not heard about that, but I will, uh, I will, I'm going to start researching and we can put it on, maybe when we look at Clayton Lockett, because that was one, it's not by the strict definition, a botched ex- execution because mm-hmm. he is dead. A botched ex- execution would imply he didn't die. That was the but it is one in which there was, yeah. But the reason okay. for the problems that they encountered was uh, some of it Lockett's own making. Okay. okay. And that's something well, yeah, we'll that's- go into when we talk about Lockett. Yeah, I haven't put him on the schedule. We we've got we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up, and um, I hadn't put him on the schedule yet. But now we can kind of, you know, talk about the challenges to the protocols for lethal injection. Well, uh, and then one other update. Okay, okay. What exactly are the stakes here? Like, let's say the court did rule in favor of the, uh, I guess it wouldn't be the defense, but the plaintiff in this case being the uh, Arkansas death row inmate. Does that mean that Arkansas can't do execution? Or does that mean Arkansas has to change what drugs they use? How does that work? Well, they would... It would. It's going to depend, and and I have to. I would rather read the uh, petition. But what would happen generally if the if the judge rules against the state of Arkansas, they're going to appeal to the Eighth Circuit. Okay. If the Eighth Circuit rules against the state of Arkansas, they'll go to the U.S. Supreme Court. If they rule against 
the the convicted killers, they'll go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. And then ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court will decide, and then they'll decide whether or not they want to uh, basically reverse base and create new precedent law, essentially. Okay. Um, but with the conservative justices I doubt it. outnumbering yeah. – the liberal progressive justice justices. I don't know that the outcome is going to be what anti-death penalty movement wants. Yeah. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, I'm saying it again. Had they left it alone, we would not have these problems. They're the ones who started contacting drug companies and pressuring drug companies not to sell drugs to be used in lethal in, in lethal injection executions. So states well, who have the death penalty have to find other ways. And if these the other ways are inferior or causing mm-hmm. problems, they should have left the protocol alone. And I, I, it may sound barbaric. People may hate me for saying this, but suffering even for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes in most cases does not compare to what the victim suffered from with for longer periods of time prior to their life being taken. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing about it. You know, we look at these things and we look at these things and people don't understand, number one, the family's perspective of, quite frankly, to be blunt, they don't give a damn. And then also, uh, you know, it really it really is no, you know, better than uh, their death then becomes no better than the person they killed, but it's still no worse. Right. And the suffering caused, I mean, the suffering that may occur during lethal injection is basically, you know, akin to any medical procedure that you undergo. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to have a knee replacement, you're going to have pain. When you wake up from anesthesia, you are going to have world of pain. And you are going to have a period of time where even the IV pump does not cut it. If you have uh-huh. cancer and you have surgery, you're going to wake up in pain. Or you're going to experience oh. significant pain <clears throat> within the first 48 hours after your oh, surgery. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, it is essentially a medical procedure. A couple of states have gone back to, I think one state's gone back to hanging and another went back to electric chair. I want to say uh, I, um, one of the states in the uh, – I'm going to call it the Mountain West because I break down this country by football conferences. But uh, I think I want to say New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado, something like that is the one that went back to electrocution. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe Oklahoma, though. Maybe Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah, but I'm yeah, not really sure. Um, 
and we could talk about that too. And then finally, um, the last update we have, Stacy Johnson, uh, another Arkansas case, and he may be one of the plaintiffs in this challenge. Uh, but in mm-hmm. his appeal on the denial of additional DNA testing, uh, mm-hmm. the, the appeal briefs have been filed. Oral argument was granted. It was initially scheduled in early May, but the prosecutor requested a continuance. And so it is going to be scheduled in June, uh, but we don't have a date yet. The date of that oral argument is pending. Okay. At the Arkansas Supreme Court. Hmm. Okay. Cool. And he's probably one of the plaintiffs in that federal case. Yeah, it says says Arkansas um, State death row inmates, so I'm sure it's like a collective of all of them. Right. Right. And we can talk about the the eight, uh, eight executions that were scheduled. Mm-hmm. And why, you know, four went through and four didn't. Okay. Awesome. Okay. But that that's a topic for another show. Um, <laughs> right on. <laughs> so, and, you know, if you want, you and I can, when we talk tomorrow night, let's discuss this this issue. This would be a good issue. That'll keep us busy while we're testing the recording. Okay. Feature. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So we are looking at uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Mumia, well, versus Wesley Cook, which is his birth name, uh, also known as Mumia Abu Jamal. Uh, we talked about Officer Daniel Faulkner. We talked a little bit about. Mumia Abu Jamal's background, the the turmoil of the seventies and into the eighties of uh, trying to to get racial equality, uh-huh. and that uh, by the eighties it, it was kind of um, things had changed, but they still needed to change a little bit more, and. The world wasn't as progressive as we are today, so it wasn't happening fast enough for some individuals. But um, uh, then we talked a little bit about the circumstances of Daniel Faulkner's murder, which, again, I still think, although I could never prove, was a setup. Uh, the more I think about it, the the two the Cook brothers being where they were at that time of night under those circumstances is just, I can't get past it. And I've also, in researching more, um, I wonder why William Cook has never said anything. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we move along in the show. But, you know, the the only thing William Cook has ever said publicly is, Mm-hmm. I, this didn't have anything to do with me, or I ain't, ha- I ain't had nothing to do with this. Right. This don't have nothing to do with me. And so that um, that statement, in and of itself, 
gives me the impression that it was a setup, that he knew exactly what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's naturally, very right, rightfully so, he's concerned about what the repercussions are going to be to himself. Of course. <clears throat> so, um, but last week, I don't, I don't know that we talked enough about Daniel Faulkner, and there were a few things that I did not mention that should have not been um, passed over. Uh, one of those mm-hmm. things is that while uh, Daniel was serving in the U.S. Army, he obtained his GED and an associate's degree in criminal justice. Really? And this was prior to leaving the Army and uh, joining the Philadelphia Police Force. He graduated second in his academy class in 1976. He had been Mm -hmm. a police officer at the time of his murder for five years. Um, He was 12 days from his 26th birthday. So, I mean, he was a young man. He had a life in front of him. He'd been married a little bit more than a year. He and his wife were saving for a, uh, like a vacation cabin in the Poconos, uh, which is mountains in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They, you know, they were saving. They they were wanting to have children. They hadn't decided at that time that they they were ready at that time, and they never got the chance. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, Officer Faulkner was taking college courses at the time he died, and he had been. Uh, he had been considering, or it was kind of a dream of his, to finish his college degree, his bachelor's degree, and go on to law school and become a prosecutor. Uh, I also want to say Daniel Faulkner, we talked about there was corruption in the Philadelphia Police Department. Uh, and in that era, you know, there was corruption probably in every major city in some pocket of their police forces. But Daniel Faulkner was not an officer involved in anything shady or under the table. He was a good officer. He had numerous commendations. Uh, he he did his job. He did everything the right way. He or or you know at least tried to do the right way. Uh, based on what I could discuss discern or or infer, uh, the judge reviewed Officer Faulkner's personnel file and found nothing in it that would be helpful to the defense, which from that I infer that there were no use of force claims or complaints against Officer Faulkner at any time during his five years. Okay. And uh, it, I would re- I would recommend that everyone listening read "Murdered by Mamiya," a life sentence of loss, pain, and injustice, which was written by Officer Faulkner's widow Maureen and Michael Smirkonish, who is a commentator. Uh, he's from Philadelphia. He's a lawyer, uh, but he's also a writer, and uh, I think he's been on. 
uh, different local and national news type comment shows. Uh, he's very, very intelligent, very well spoken, very knowledgeable, and uh, I've enjoyed listening to him because I've, you know, Googled as much as I could on YouTube and listened at work. Uh, but it's a, it's mm-hmm. a great book. You can find it on Amazon. I believe you can still find it at Barnes and Noble. Um, it's it is a great book, and it deals not only with um, with the case, the facts of the case, and the years of appeals, but it also deals with who Daniel Faulkner was and what he meant to so many people. Uh, I was rereading the early sections of the book, and there are just so many recollections from people who knew him talking about what a great guy he was. He was a guy's guy. He was just like a normal guy, but he was a good police officer. And um, he certainly, he wasn't a person, a police officer against whom Mumia Abu-Jamal had any right whatsoever to have any animosity. Right. Had they had they met on the street and talked, I think Mumia Abu-Jamal would have liked him if he could have gotten past his attitude mm-hmm. to get to know him rather than just seeing him as a blue uniform. Right. So, um, again, I, I just uh, – there was so much in the book, and I wish – I wish there was more online and more about him because he's the victim and he needs to be remembered. And his wife, Ma- his, his widow Maureen, is, is doing an excellent job with that. In fact, uh, right before we went on the air, I was watching a, a rally uh, that she was speaking at uh, yesterday. But that's for a topic for our post-conviction discussion mm-hmm. probably in our final episode. <laughs> right. But uh, because they're, they're, this case is 38 years old. It's been going on longer than Officer Faulkner was alive. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a little bit sad, especially under the circumstances with the evidence that we know from the night of the murder. Okay. So and so we'll move on. Um, this uh, this. I guess episode we're going to talk about the system that afforded Mumia Abu-Jamal the rights of due process that he did not have or give to his victim. Mm -hmm. Um, He was in, uh, as you remember, as you recall, 
Mumia Abu Jamal had been shot by Officer Faulkner, so he was found at the scene. His 38 caliber pistol with five spent shell cases in the cylinder. Ladies and gentlemen, I looked it up on Google after we went off the air. The round part of a revolver is called a cylinder. Uh, that was lying next to him on the concrete. Officers who were coming to back up Officer Faulkner on the traffic stop and mm-hmm. had been advised that an officer had been killed or had been shot uh, arrived at the scene within a minute, a minute and ten seconds of the shooting. And they they were able, to, I think, to reconstruct the time pretty well from the radio transmissions that went out. They know when Officer Faulkner made the traffic stop because he called it in. They know when he asked for the wagon. Uh, they know when the, the uh, wagon, the first wagon was advised by Michael Scanlon that an officer had been shot because they called it in. Mm-hmm. And then there was a lot of radio traffic in the interim uh, up until the time that Officer Faulkner and Abu Jamal were both taken to Jefferson Hospital. So we have a pretty good chronology, and and it's one that we don't generally have in a lot of cases because – we're relying on people's memories of I last saw the victim at 2.15. That could have been 2. It could have been 2.15. It could have been 2.30. You know. So uh, he was arrested. He was treated at the Jefferson Hospital. Uh, Daniel Faulkner had been pronounced dead in the same emergency room. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Many officers went to the uh, emergency room. Uh, Maureen Faulkner, uh, people came to her house and let her know that something had happened to Danny, and they brought her to the hospital, and she waited in the waiting room. People came to support her. Uh, She had the support from not only her family, but her husband's family. And I think throughout the years... Um, I think that's another one of the things that amazes me is that that family has remained like one. Um, you know, the Faulkner family has supported her in everything that she's done. She's stayed close to them. She supports them. She is the face of the victim's family and the primary spokesperson, but she looks out for them as well and includes them in her her statements and, and her feelings and her advocacy for her husband. Um, Abu Jamal was indicted. He was arraigned in the hospital on December 10th, I believe. Uh, There are some people, I think when we talk about the post-conviction, we'll get into a little bit more. There are some people that say, oh, well, why couldn't they wait for him to be out of the hospital and arraign him then? Why did a judge have to go to the hospital to arrange him? What was their hurry? And, of course, in most 
And I think even federal law requires that if you're going to hold somebody on charges, you have to give them a chance to enter a plea on those charges. And you have to give them a chance to ask the court to let them go pending trial. Mm-hmm. So you can't just – they couldn't hold him in the hospital at Jefferson handcuffed to a bed for five days, four days. I think the, the time period on arraignment is no more than 72 hours. I'll research that. Okay. And so that is why the crime occurred December 9th. He was arrested December 9th. That is why he was arraigned on December 10th, which was a weekday, in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And as I recall reading somewhere, he would not enter a plea, and so the judge entered a not guilty plea for him. Okay. And uh, even even at that stage, I know he didn't have the arraignment, but as I'm looking at it, I realize arraignment comes before indictment. Well, no, it can come <laughs> after indictment. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> um, well, it, the, the different state criminal laws are different. Like in Louisiana, we get charges by the police, and then the district attorney can file a bill of information, but we don't necessarily have to have an indictment. You can be charged by information or indictment. And I don't know that Louisiana uses a grand jury system that much. So, uh, but anyway, he was indicted. Uh, The charge was Murder in the first degree, possession of a weapon of crime, or possession of instrument of crime. And I think at one point there was also a, it was murder, voluntary manslaughter, or an involuntary manslaughter. There were three counts Mm -hmm. to the indictment. He went to trial on the murder, and possession of instrument of a crime. Right. And um, then after the indictment, you begin the period of pretrial hearings. There was a preliminary hearing held um, at which all a judge has to determine is whether or not probable cause exists to hold a defendant over to trial. Mm -hmm. They're not determining guilt or innocence. They're not determining whether it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, It's just sufficient probable cause to continue holding someone over for trial. Um, They had that. I I haven't found that transcript. Um, Sometime also during that pretrial period, Mumia Abu-Jamal chose an attorney. He was indigent. In other words, he couldn't afford to pay for an attorney of his own. 
so he was a but he was able to choose a private attorney who would then be appointed by the court and paid by the citizens of Philadelphia uh, to represent Mumia Abu Jamal in these very serious criminal charges. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting thing is almost from the moment of his arrest, there were also Mumia Abu Jamal defense funds. Right. Nobody disclosed where those funds were going and what they were being used for. Uh, but and again, I, I want to make this important because it come, becomes very important later on in our in our chronology. Uh, Mumia Abu Jamal chose Anthony Jackson. Anthony Jackson had represented other move members in their various criminal travels through the criminal court systems in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Um, he had represented 20, I believe it was first-degree murder defendants, mm-hmm. only six of whom had been convicted. And as I recall from the uh, official sources that I read, uh, only one of those first-degree murder cases resulted in a death penalty verdict prior to 1982. So he was a pretty good, savvy attorney. He okay. was not a public defender. He was not someone that Mamiya Abu never uh, Abu Jamal never wanted. Uh, he was not forced upon Mamiya Abu Jamal. He was chosen. Mm-hmm. So we go through the period of um, the pro- the pro- preliminary hearing. After the preliminary hearing. There's a lot of motion practice that goes on. Uh, Jackson filed what what are called omnibus motions in uh, Pennsylvania, which basically are discovery motions. They're just asking that they that the defendant be provided with certain categories of uh, documents, evidence, statements, you know, things of the, along those lines, uh, exculpatory information, exculpatory statements exculpatory evidence. It's a discovery motion. Mm-hmm. And um, Pennsylvania also has, though, some hybrid of a reciprocal system. A defendant doesn't have to provide everything to the Commonwealth, but they do have to provide whatever they're going to use at trial. So they have to identify witnesses that they're going to use at trial. They have to, if they take statements from those witnesses, they need to provide the Commonwealth with those statements. If they don't take statements, they have to provide a summary of the testimony. Um, If they have experts, they have to provide expert reports. If they don't get expert reports, I know that trick because I've worked for attorneys who do it in the civil arena. Um, basically talk to the expert and the expert tells you what's good about your case and what's bad about your case 
and then you know you you make a decision whether you settle or you go to trial. Uh, but you don't ever actually have them put any of that stuff in writing. Um, and uh, plaintiffs attorneys do it, defense attorneys do it. It's it's not you know it's not it's it's smart. <laughs> right. Um, not well. I mean, and a lot of times when when your expert basically tells you your case is a dog with fleas and mange, mm-hmm. you say, okay, I'm going to settle. You don't try to go to trial. So um, it works out. But uh, they go through several of these motions, and one of the motions that, uh, another motion that Anthony Jackson filed was a motion to suppress. And I know that uh, even though Jackson fervently argued his client's position. I know that the motion to suppress and the way it was approached was coming from Jamal because the motions to suppress were concerned with the credibility of the witnesses and the statements of the witnesses Mm -hmm. rather than whether or not any legal right had been violated by police. Or prosecutors. Okay. And so uh, there were several of these motions, and Jackson argued, like I said, fervently. He argued Abu Jamal's position. During one of the later hearings on May 13th, and it may have actually been the last hearing prior to the case moving into the, the real trial preparation phase, uh, Abu Jamal decided he wanted to represent himself and that he did not want Anthony Jackson as his backup counsel. Because when 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 a lay defendant who's not legally trained they do have a right to self representation although it's not absolute um but generally, if they have been represented by counsel, the court will retain that counsel to advise them during the course of the trial as to procedure, um, statutory rights, um, admissibility of evidence. You know, if, if the prosecution is uh, is questioning a witness and the witness says something that's not admissible, like a hearsay statement of someone not a a party. Um, if the layperson doesn't know to object, the backup counsel can kind of ask for a timeout, let them know they need to object and what grounds they need to object on. Although maybe not to that degree, but whatever. Um, but so. Right. And then also Jackson argued that he didn't want to be backup counsel, that he wasn't trained to be backup counsel, and that he was a lawyer, he was an attorney, and he was either going to be the attorney or he was going to help Abu Jamal privately. But the court didn't have a right to keep him as backup counsel. Of course, that was 
totally wrong. Um, and when we talk about the post-trial, uh, post-conviction claims, we'll get into some of these claims as well. But uh, the judge, a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Paul Ribner, he was the initial judge during the pretrial phase. Um, he ordered Jackson to remain as back- backup counsel, but he allowed Abu Jamal at that point to begin representing himself. Uh, finally, the the last thing is that uh, Abu Jamal demanded that a gentleman by the name of John Africa, I think you remember we talked about him last week, who was a non-lawyer, be appointed to represent him or to be appointed as backup counsel. Mm-hmm. And that is not permitted by either U.S. Supreme Court or Pennsylvania law in any way, shape, or form. You cannot have a non-lawyer represent you or even assist you. You as a non-lawyer can represent yourself. And I think the reason Abu Jamal wanted John Africa was because John Africa had managed to get an acquittal on a conspiracy weapons charge in federal court. Okay. But that was he was he was representing himself. His co-defendant represented himself. And I would love to see the transcripts of that trial. Uh but I I doubt they're anywhere that I can read them. Right. So, um that pre-trial period kind of ended with Abu Jamal representing himself, Anthony Jackson remaining as backup counsel by order of Judge Ribner, and Abu Jamal's demand for John Africa to be appointed to represent him denied. Mm-hmm. Um, the case went on into a motion to suppress, which is the motion filed earlier, and the basically the hearing on the motion to suppress was put off until closer to the trial date. Um, I think that was in okay. the beginning of June. Um, and at that motion to suppress, the officers, uh, some of the officers who responded, uh, they testified regarding what they found when they reached the scene. And... Um, uh, you know, West, they, somebody, one of the officers testified regarding uh, William Cook's statement about it doesn't have anything to do with me. And uh, the officer, Shoemaker, testified regarding uh, finding Abu Jamal sitting on the curb, seeing Daniel Faulkner's body a few feet behind him, uh, seeing the gun, kicking the gun out of his way. Um the witnesses, Robert Schaubert and uh, Cynthia White, and I believe Albert Magleton, all testified as to what they witnessed during the shooting. Um, and again, you know, it's it's kind of funny. In reading their testimony, they were all honest. They weren't saying, I saw the whole thing. I saw every second of it. And... You know, if they didn't see the gun, 
They said they didn't see the guy. If they didn't see Mumia Abu-Jamal as he was shooting Officer Faulkner, they said they didn't see that. They basically testified to what they actually saw and their identification of Abu-Jamal at the scene. And then finally, there was the admission testimony from uh, uh, Priscilla Durham from the Jefferson Hospital. She was a security guard uh, as to the circumstances of Abu Jamal's – well, there was first uh, Inspector Giordano testified. He asked Abu Jamal, where's the gun? Because he observed a shoulder holster, holster. And he asked Abu Jamal, where's the gun? And Abu Jamal said, I dropped it on the street after I shot him. I think I misquoted that statement last week. But the the exact words, I dropped it on the street after I shot him. Which corroborates Shoemaker's testimony. Because that's where it was found. On the street next to Abu Jamal. And then... Priscilla Durham testified about, I shot the MFR and I hope the MFR dies, and that he said it twice. Um, and uh, Jackson, even though he was operating as backup counsel, he was permitted by the court to supplement Abu Jamal's argument, but the motion failed not because the judge was against Abu Jamal or the fix was in. It's simply that Abu Jamal, instead of proving that his rights had been somehow violated, uh, instead of proving that when he made the statements he was being interrogated and he wasn't properly Mirandized and uh, – you know, the witnesses were influenced to identify him and, think, you know, those those criteria. He just tried proving the statements never happened, that police are making everything up, that the witnesses uh, made had discrepancies in their descriptions and inconsistencies in their descriptions, and therefore they're lying. And when, you know, that, that absolute mindset that he had, really prevented him from seeing the way to refute. And in the motion to suppress, something that's interesting, even though uh, Abu Jamal was, was the one filing the motion to suppress and asking that everything be uh, ruled inadmissible, and he was trying to get out all the statements that he claimed that they claimed he made, the witnesses ident- identifying him at the scene, as well as the physical evidence, evidence seized at the scene and at his cab. Um, but uh, you know, he he just saw that absolute of I'm being framed, I was beaten, and so he couldn't see his way to refuting the Commonwealth case because it was the Commonwealth that put on their case first because even though he's making the motion, the Commonwealth bears the burden of showing that everything was done by the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, the 
motion to suppress ended up being denied. During the motion to suppress, and this this became oh wait, you okay in me? Yeah, I'm okay. Um, okay. The uh, the motion to suppress was denied, but also every hearing, every appearance, Abu Jamal would would re-urge and bring up the John Africa issue. And then he would come up with another issue. He wanted the court to appoint legal runners. He wanted daily transcripts from the trial. And uh, now the motion to suppress was held before the trial judge. I forgot to mention that. He was a gentleman by the name of Albert Sabo. Um, But uh, some of the things... Again, John Africa, the court cannot appoint a non-lawyer to represent a criminal defendant under any circumstances in any case. Makes sense. So he's basically he's basically demanding that the court break the law and and in my uh opinion he was trying to set up legal error. Okay, because so he thought maybe he thought if he asked enough. Correct. Okay. Because that's that's the kind of mindset that that he had. Mm-hmm. So and then he wanted the court to appoint legal runners, which he was asking the court a lot of times to do things the court didn't have to do. Or that the court really didn't have the power to do. He believed mm-hmm. the court had the power. But again, that was from his twisted mindset rather than reality. Right. And then, you know, like he was wanting daily transcripts, and the, the, the judge said, I can't even get daily transcripts. Okay. And before we go to break, Next let time. me... Let me tell you, I haven't worked as a court reporter, but I've had a lot of friends who have. And back in the 80s and early 90s, we didn't have the computer programs that translate stenographic characters and produce the transcripts that then the court reporter just has to listen to a tape and proofread. Back in the 80s Mm -hmm. and 90s, you had to take those tapes and you had to translate them and type them. My mom had a friend that ha- actually had sitting at a typewriter reading the tape. And then once you did that and a you know a, a day's hearing some of these hearings on Abu Jamal were the the day's hearing were 251 pages long. Mm-hmm. And then once you finished that part, then you had to listen to the tape and proofread and make sure you got everything accurately. So one of my friends who was a court reporter, she didn't she couldn't do it anymore because she wasn't getting paid enough by the agency that she worked for. And it was taking way too much time. She was coming home at night and working until midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right. Trying to transcribe things. 
And then Saturday and Sunday, she did nothing but sit in her house and proofread and transcribe and everything. And it just wasn't worth it to her. So it was not an easy job, and that is why the judge was not going to order his courtroom court reporter to get daily transcripts to Abu Jamal. Uh, contrary to Abu Jamal's opinion, I don't find that that was unreasonable. And in reading the transcript and the explanations that the judge provided to him at the time, um, I, I just, I think the judge was extremely patient, extremely reasonable, in the face of somebody who was extremely unreasonable. Uh-huh. So, um, so that's the end of the motion to suppress. Uh, you want to take okay. a break real quick? And well, yeah, we'll absolutely. go on to the voir dire. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm going into some of these things because they will become an issue in the post-conviction and okay. the advocacy when we talk about those things. And so I'm coming, you know, I'm, I'm going with you now and giving you that information now. And um, I'm also giving you my opinion based on hey. everything that I read from when these things happened. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, I guess let's take a break. We'll be right back with more uh, clear and convincing. The summer's gone 
And all the roses falling It's you, it's you must go And I must buy Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Philadelphia police tonight are mourning the death of a young police officer shot and killed on a Center City street corner early this morning. On the night of December... jurors are chosen so I know we did a little primer way back in episode one so just to remind listeners um, it is I think Latin and I'm probably pronouncing it correct incorrectly but that's how they pronounce it in Louisiana so sorry folks Um, but that's and that I'm going to be going through that in May because I've got my criminal court jury duty coming up. Okay. So that'll be interesting. But anyway, (laughs) um, what happens is uh, jurors, I believe in 1982, which was in June, that's when the trial started, jurors were chosen by registered voters. At that time, and so they uh-huh. randomly I think they did have a computer that did it, and the jurors were randomly chosen. There's a system that they have where they pick one name and then every nth juror after that is chosen. it's random, and you get a veneer or a pool uh anywhere from one hundred to three hundred depending on the size of the jurisdiction, the type of case, 
and uh, the, I guess, you know, what you think you'll need and the publicity and things like that. If if you have a case that's had a lot of publicity, you may get, do two pools instead of just a single pool. <clears throat> and I don't have a lot of information on exactly how many jurors appeared for this process. Uh, if I can find that, I will definitely supplement this information later. Uh, and we could talk about it during the, again, the post-conviction because the jury issues will come up. Um, okay. There are basically uh, what the judge generally does and what they did in this case, the judge comes out and he talks to the entire pool and he asks certain questions. If anyone has believes that serving on the jury will cause a hardship for them. Uh, if you have young children or you're caring for a sick relative or you have medical conditions of your own and he asks members of the pool if that might apply to you, please stand up, and they stand up. He asked about, and he asked a lot of questions about relatives and police who did police work or friends, uh, connections to police work, um, you know, various questions to determine who might have hardships. And then when the voir dire occurs, that's actually one juror at a time is brought in and the attorneys from both sides ask questions or the court will ask the questions. Initially, Abu Jamal was representing himself and so he was permitted to question the jurors. And uh, on the end of the second day they encountered some problems and so the prosecutor felt that the judge might be the better person to do the questioning and that way just the judge asked the questions but um, there are processes jurors dismissed for cause either side can say I, just, I want to dismiss for cause the other side can either argue against it or assent to it, and then the jurors dismiss for cause. And that doesn't count against anybody. Generally, somebody who has family members who are police officers in Philadelphia, they're going to dismiss them for cause. People who absolutely cannot sentence someone to death can be dismissed for cause because the Commonwealth is as entitled to a fair jury as a defendant is. And the state, in any case, is also entitled to a fair jury. People lose sight of that sometimes. They think the only one who should get a fair jury is the accused. And that is simply just not the case. So the state, if in a case where the death penalty is an eligible punishment, the state is entitled to people who can consider the death penalty. Right. And sometimes you get people who just absolutely, I don't believe in capital punishment. I could never consider it. And basically, if they can't consider it, they would not be following the law or the instructions of the court. And then um, there are peremptory challenges. 
some states, when you do a peremptory challenge, I think you also have to give the reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like uh, if the defendant wants to do, to peremptorily challenge a juror because the juror's husband is a police officer. In in this case, they could just say, you know, peremptory challenge, and that was the end of it. Again, Abu Jamal, if the if the Commonwealth was going to peremptorily challenge someone, Abu Jamal could object and could question right. the juror either on, on a for-cause or a peremptory, could question the juror to try and rehabilitate them so that the Commonwealth might accept them. Um uh, and you know, interestingly, in the in the transcripts from the voir dire that I went through, um, Abu Jamal, who kept saying he was entitled to a juror of his peers, he peremptorily challenged a lot of white jurors. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some whose race I don't know for sure. Because they didn't, they never asked him the race question. But with names like Inamorata and Caruso, uh, Moran, pretty safe bet those were Caucasian jurors. Um, so that was something interesting. On the second day. There was one extremely funny response by one of the jurors to one of the questions, and I printed it out because I just have to read it, and bless her heart, it was priceless, and I can see myself doing this. She was asked, how far did you go in school? How far did I go? Yes, ma'am. About two miles to grammar school. How far? I'm sorry. I graduated from high school. Do you not get it? Yeah, that's funny. (laughs) You didn't laugh. It's one of those those jokes that you're like, I'm going to laugh at this, but, you know, come on now. I, I just, when I read that, I started laughing because, I, like I said, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying anything ridiculing this woman, because I could see myself in those circumstances when somebody asked me how far did I go in school, and I hear how far did you go, I could, I could see myself answering, I had to ride a bus because it was, a, it was uptown. Right. Oh, so, she. But I, I just, I, like I said, I thought that was funny. I'm not. Uh, I don't mean to to make fun of the lady. It was just, it right. was just a funny, funny response. And so, uh, and uh, the uh, voir dire also uh, Abu Jamal demonstrated his um, utter intractability anything because and he threw what I've come to think of as his little hissy fits 
because he engaged in arguments with the judge. And to me, that's just, especially if you're on trial for murder and you're representing yourself, you don't do. I've seen attorneys do it, but at least they have the sense to let it go quickly. And he would go on for pages and pages and pages. I have, I printed one out that's like 24 pages long. And he's accusing the judge of wanting to ensure, ensure a conviction and holding the prosecutor's hand. And it's like, buddy, get over yourself. You're not the judge. Um, so also on the second day, two of the jurors expressed fear of Jamal. He was questioning them. There was one juror. He asked her a question about her husband. She said her husband was deceased. And then he asked her a question about her household. And she said that she would prefer not to answer that question. And then he got a little aggressive in trying to get an answer from her. And then there was a an exchange where he asked a question. The prosecutor, Joseph McGill, objected to the question. The judge sustained the objection. And he just repeated the question. He didn't even rephrase it. Mm-hmm. And so he was, he was, I have, it's a cold transcript, but just from the repeatedly asking the same question two or three times, I think he was probably getting a little aggressive and appearing aggressive. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that, and that's when, after that happened, they had been, two days, and they had one juror. Dang. And that was when Prosecutor Joseph McGill proposed that the judge question the jurors. The judge would get questions from the prosecutor as well as Abu Jamal, and then he would ask the questions. And, of course, Abu Jamal objected to that, Interestingly, even though he kept saying his backup counsel was there under protest and he wanted John Africa and the backup counsel wasn't really doing his job and blah, 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 you know, all these excuses, he still let Jackson argue in trying to rehabilitate jurors or keep jurors. And again, it was like two against one. And I have to say, some of the some of the claims that are going to come out later during post conviction, again, Judge Sabo was exceedingly patient with Abu Jamal. Right. And I mean, he did he did say at one point Abu Jamal for the third time said he wanted the you know John Africa to be appointed, and the judge said I've ruled on it. For the third time, it's denied. You know, you don't have to keep doing this. I know you object. I know you don't agree, but 
this is the way we, you know, this is the way we do it and we move on. And again, his obstinacy, he could not, he couldn't let it go and move on. So he continued demanding John Africa be appointed. Uh, he demanded the legal runners be appointed, which wasn't really necessary because he could give names to the prison, and if the people met the criteria to gain entry to the prison based on the prison's rules and regulations, he could have had as many legal runners as he wanted. But he wanted the judge to order the prison. Being the executive branch, the prison is not really beholden to the judge. And the only time the judge can tell the prison to do anything is when the prison's breaking the law. Right. And, you know, once again, Judge Sabo explained all you have to do is go to the prison, go to the superintendent, give him the names of the people you want. They qualify. You've got them. I don't need to order him to do anything. And he said, if he doesn't, if he's breaking the law, let me know, and I will take care of it. I will look into it, and if I can do something, I'll do it. But right now, I don't need to order him to do anything. And it was the same with the daily transcripts. I think he brought that up three or four times, and then the first day of trial, skipping ahead a little bit, he brings his own... Um, he brings his own stenographer into court. Really? So, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and well, and that's a, that's the thing. And that's the thing, you know, that's the mentality from move. They don't think the rules apply to them. And, you know there were there were statements in the uh, some of the the motions that they made about the legal runners in prison. Um, Abu Jamal actually got a lot of privileges while he was being held for trial that other prisoners didn't get. Mm-hmm. And I mean there was one instance where because Abu Jamal followed move move were vegetarians and they had a raw diet. They didn't eat any cooked food. Um, the what? judge got in touch with the, you know, got in, got together with the prison and made sure that Abu Jamal could get fruits and vegetables, raw fruits and vegetables so that he would have plenty of food. Um, you know, so prison, even in 1981, Prison was not like your grandma's house. Were you going to eat what I cooked, or you're not going to eat at all? Right. And I'm sure Miss, I'm sure Miss Edith did was not a short order cook in her house. And I'll bet you anything, her children ate what she cooked, and were glad to have it. Right. Uh, and then there was another instance, apparently. When the voir dire began, um, the lunch for the sheriff's office had a holding cell area for 
prisoners there for trial or, or hearings or whatever proceedings, and they fed them a hot lunch. The judge actually talked to the uh, sheriff's office and said, look, get his food in a bag. Nobody knows it's his. Nobody knows you have it. Just get his food in a bag and bring that over with him. The sheriff wasn't happy about it, but the judge said, you know, you you know, just do that so that he has food during the day. Yeah, but I mean, and, come on now. This dude's testing for testing. This is... You know, you got to remember, I'm I'm setting the stage here. This is a judge who hated Abu Jamal, wanted to get him convicted, was against him from the jump. Right. And yet when Anthony Jackson says he's not getting food while he's here during the day, the judge called the sheriff in and said, look, do this. So that he has food. Oh my goodness. He didn't take the attitude. If he doesn't want to eat with the sheriff's servant, he can starve. I don't care. You know, and I was I was extremely impressed on some of these things, even though the food issue especially, because I think initially there was a problem with the jail having raw fruit and vegetables for him to eat. And so the judge intervened and talked to the superintendent. And, you know, every time Jackson said there was a problem, the judge handled it. Right. I mean, oh, my goodness. And this dude's going to complain about him. Right. Exactly. Well, to me... That, and this is just from the, you know, preliminary, and Judge Ribner and Judge Sabo both intervened on the food issue. And Judge Ribner and Judge Sabo both intervened on visitor issues. Now, interestingly as well, one of the legal runners that Abu Jamal wanted appointed was a woman by the name of Jeanette Africa. She was in jail. What? So basically, he wanted her as a legal runner, even though she's in jail or in prison, and she's not going to be able to do anything. But she would be, if she was his legal runner, he could have her transported to where he was being held, and they could confer and meet under the guise of her being one of his legal runners. Um, Hold on. Again. What's this stuff? This is just my speculation. You're not even allowed to have any. Well, no, no, no. In the in the in the Philadelphia uh, and maybe even in Pennsylvania, um, in the late seventies, early eighties, there was Uh a program for incarcerated uh, prisoners awaiting trial to have legal runners appointed to assist their appointed counsel or public defender. 
even if they're in jail? The, not not a runner who's in jail, no. You okay. could have people, uh, you know, you could have, you know, you could have your brother appointed as a legal runner for your case. And your brother could come into the prison provided he met the criteria. He was not, uh, he was not just released from prison because they usually say you, you can't go back in the prison if you've only been released less than 90 days. Um, and as long as you follow all the prison rules. But personally, I was, I was going to say my opinion, my speculation is that he was trying to appoint legal runners who could then submit bills for their services. Mm-hmm. And be paid. So his um, whole deal was. I don't. I don't know whether in 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 reality that that could have happened, but the way he the way he kept wanting the judge to appoint people just gave me the impression that he thought there was some money to be had right. from it. And you got to remember, he's indigent. And so the court's going to be paying for his experts and the court's paying for his counsel, even as backup counsel. And he, but he's got this defense fund and they actually did pay for an investigator. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's kind of like WM3.org. And I think it's still like WM3.org. It's a gravy train. Right. And, uh, it, it's, it's got a lot of people on it now, so I'm waiting for it to run off the tracks. Right. So, um, and at some point during the voir dire process, he was removed as counsel, um, but and he didn't help himself in that situation. Um, I think the arguments with the judge and the outbursts directed toward the judge. finally violated decorum Mm -hmm. enough that the judge decided that it was in his best interests not to represent himself. Right. So as the trial opens, you know, and, but you know, the judge gave him like, I don't know, 29, 30, Chances, um, right? I I printed out one of the exchanges. Um, this is when they were discussing the uh, the voir dire for the uh, you know for the judge to do the questioning rather than the attorneys. And again, when that happens, and it is permitted in Pennsylvania, when it happens. The district attorney doesn't get to question anybody. Right. 
So the court takes over questioning and it moves quicker because the court knows exactly how to phrase the questions to comply with admissibility and law. And so it saves time. Abu Jamal asks, uh, Judge, am I going to be allowed to represent myself in this matter? Will I be able to represent myself? Judge Sabo responds, you are representing yourself. It's just a question of who should conduct the voir dire, whether the court should do it or whether the attorney should do it. The defendant, are you supporting my right to a jury of my peers, Judge? Certainly, but conducting the voir dire has nothing to do with the jury of your peers. Abu Jamal, I disagree. Oh, Lord Jesus. I mean... <laughs> I give up. And then there's another one. Um, they, uh, they're talking about the judge taking over. The next morning, Prosecutor McGill, again, someone who's who is bound and determined, according to Abu Jamal's advocates, to put an innocent man, to kill an innocent man, he comes in and he says, look, Mr. Jamal will allow Mr. Jackson to question the jurors. This may move along a little bit better. Because, again, remember, two days, one juror. There were right. a number of hardship excuse. You know, they excused a number of people, a number of people for hardship. They excused a number of people for cause, and then they had a few peremptories. But they had mm-hmm. been two days, and they had only agreed on a single juror. Mm-hmm. I mean, two, two days you should have at least. Eight to ten jurors. Right. Okay. So basically, All right. he's making life. He's trying to um, obstruct this jur- jury selection as much as he can. Well, I think the problem is it's not that he's trying to obstruct it per se. It's that he doesn't know the law. He doesn't understand the law, and somewhere in his little brain he has gotten an idea of an absolute that benefits him and doesn't benefit anyone else and he should have never been uh, representing himself either from the way it sounds really no because you really have to uh, you have to be able you know, you have to be able to accept the judge's ruling, right? Which you and move could. on, which he never right. could do. Um, so, yeah. Mr. McGill proposes this, and um, they ask Mr. Jamal. The court says, "Have you made up your mind?" The defendant, "I object totally. I object totally to that so-called compromise." The court says, "Then I will take over the wadir." Defendant, I'm not surprised. I said you would do it yesterday. Uh, Judge Saber responds, the rules allow me to do it, and I will do it in the interest of justice. Abu Jamal, that's not in the interest of justice. It's in the interest of a conviction. 
and as as we as we progress, he gets more and more um, juicy, aggressive, <laughs> and <laughs> and insulting. And one of the other things, you know, one of the other things with Move is they like to curse and swear and call people names. Oh, hey. Now and so he adds that to his out. repertoire. Huh? So now these kind of Pardon? sound like my people. No, they, they, they really, they, well, they're not real creative. Oh, okay. You know, I, 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 I have known people and I, I think I'm actually one of them. Um, I learned a lot of swear words, and I can be inventive, and I can use them as nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs. Right. You know, I can get pretty creative. Um, and he, you know, they, they kind of stick with MFR. Oh, okay. And bastard. Dang it. So, um, yeah, but see, he just got, he got aggressive, and he, and he got uh, really just stepped over. And it didn't. It didn't do him. He was only hurting himself, and couldn't even see that. Right. And um, so they were able to. The voir dire went on for uh, six days. And finally, they got their 12 jury members and alternates. I think they had two alternates. Um, Unfortunately, one of the jury members, the jurors were going to be sequestered during the trial and sentencing because of the publicity. And one of the jurors, in fact, the first juror picked, she apparently asked a bailiff if she could leave to go home and care for a sick cat or take a sick cat to the vet. I don't know if there was nobody in the household to to do it. Um, She was told that she could not have permission to leave, and so she left anyway. And there was, well, what happened was the bailiff advised the court, the court advised the prosecutor and the attorneys, and then there was a hearing, and eventually both the prosecutor and Abu Jamal agreed to dismiss her from the jury because she broke sequestration. Right. Um, <clears throat> so she was dismissed, Wait, and an alternate took her place. That, has anybody come up with the theory that uh, maybe he was doing this on purpose? No, no. In fact, the juror, actually, as it turns out, that particular juror had shown some hostility toward Abu Jamal right but again no she she broke she broke sequestration all on her own 
Uh, there was no, you know, there was no conspiracy. Uh, there was no grand scheme or plan. It's just she was a little on the obstinate side. Or, looking back, she had a sick animal at home who needed to go to the vet and no one could take it. Right. And she asked for permission to go. She was told that she could not go. And she elected to go anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't think anything, like I said, I, I don't think anything is wrong. She did what she felt she had to do, but that she could not remain on the jury. Did she get in any trouble legally? No, 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 <clears throat> no. Something that? like that. Well, I mean, sequestering anybody is going to present challenges. Right. And so I think when you have a, a juror, who, even though the juror had only been sequestered like a day or maybe two days, I mean, it, it wasn't like the OJ trial where four months later um, right. they were still sequestered. Uh, but... No, I think generally when they have sequestration, they know there are going to be issues and there are going to be problems. And what they do is they try to take care of the problem. Minimize them. Without without the rest of the jury members becoming aware of it or forming any opinion about it. Right. Cause disruption. You know, no fuss, no muss. Right. Um, and no, I she wouldn't get in trouble. Okay. The only way she would have gotten in trouble was if she was trying to sneak out of the hotel, the bailiff caught her and tried to stop her, and she then assaulted the bailiff. That would get her in trouble. But mm-hmm. she was, I think, actually able to sneak away, and they only discovered her gone and realized, you know, we she wanted to go. And, again, in her defense, she asked for permission. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, they probably would contact somebody to take her, bring her home, let her get her cat, stay with her, go to the vet – you know, deal with everything and make sure she doesn't encounter any publicity or media or anything about the trial. I don't know. Um, Okay. Or today they might say, oh, well, yeah, that's a hardship. We'll excuse you. She was basically just excused from the jury. There is a claim that another juror member had to break sequestration for a civil service exam of some kind um i have not been able to corroborate that but i would imagine if it is true and innocence advocates sometimes there's a grain of truth but it's wildly exaggerated 
um, even if it were, if there were someone whose job required them to take some form of civil service exam in order to keep their job, if they advised the court when they were picked for jury duty, I have to take this exam on this date at this time, the court probably would go ahead and send somebody with them to let them take that exam because a court does not want jurors losing their job. Right. You know, so again, going to take care of a cat, we look at it differently now, but in 1981, it was a cat. Yeah. And, you know, if she had a husband or a, or an adult child living at home or nearby, somebody else could have taken care of the cat. True, true. You know. But we can assume she didn't. Uh, well, it, she either didn't or perhaps was one of those people who, if she didn't do it, nobody was going to do it right. Ah, I got gotcha. you. Or her husband would not know what to tell the vet. True, um, true. You know, and, and it could have been something similar where the where the cat was extremely sick, and she was taking it to the vet to have it put down. True. So um, that'll that'll come up during uh, during the post conviction as well. So, uh, well, I can imagine. We'll talk about it. I said, was this a conspiracy? Because, you know, I mean, come on now. This this dude's getting a lot of this. He's obstructing a lot of these things. Yeah, he's. uh, It only gets. It only gets worse at trial. Um. But, uh, you know, he's – that was totally independent of him, though, as I said. Right. So – and I I made a mistake in the notes. Abu Jamal was not removed um, until the beginning of trial. He remained as counsel through the end of the voir dire process. Okay. So, um, and unfortunately, the first day of trial did not start out the way the judge and the prosecutor would have planned for it to go. Because immediately... Abu Jamal launched into yet another of his complaints. Um, there was an issue regarding photographs and some audio tapes. Mm-hmm. And even though um, you know, I guess uh, that the, the Transition between Jackson and Jamal uh, 
something got lost in translation. Uh, but as soon as they open the trial, the first day, Abu Jamal starts complaining about not getting some photographs, being able to listen to audio tapes. Uh, and even though the judge said, you'll hear it before the witnesses testify, that's okay, he continued arguing that they should have gotten it weeks ago and, you know, this is all part of the conspiracy against him and uh, just would not let it go. And um, they did reach a compromise and then um, he started in wanting John Africa to represent him, John Africa to sit at the council table to assist him uh, all of those things are not going to happen. Absolutely. And uh, he spent the entire first day arguing different points. Uh, I, once again, the court, even though Jamal was representing himself, the court allowed Anthony Jackson to supplement the argument. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they spend a good deal of time discussing the tape issue, and they're going to make sure that uh, Abu Jamal gets to listen to the tapes at lunchtime. And so uh, they go on. And then just as uh, they call the case, just as the judge says to Mr. McGill that he can make his opening statement, there is once again a uh, tirade. Uh, Abu Jamal, they part of calling the case is advising the defendant of the charges. And then the defendant, again, at the opening of the trial, they want the defendant to enter a plea. Guilty, right. not guilty. Yeah. Abu Pretty Jamal average. refuses to enter a plea. Oh, hell, of course he does. <laughs> and... um Abu Jamal demands a microphone. And the judge said that he doesn't need a microphone. Abu Jamal said, I'm talking about speaking so that everyone can hear me. So he wants to make a statement instead of allowing the prosecutor to make his opening statement because the Commonwealth bears the burden of proof and therefore goes first. So they argue, uh, he argues again, the judge, the jury comes in, and the judge gives the initial instructions that he gives to every jury uh, when they first open the trial. Um, After he finishes, and he's going to let the district attorney make the opening remarks, Jamal wants to make a a statement. He wants a microphone at the table, and he wants it now. 
And this is the exchange. Uh, I need the microphone at the table. Court, I don't have one. The defendant, you get one. The court, you should have asked for one before. The defendant, I need one now. The court, you have to speak up, and if you can't speak up, then I may have to remove you and put Mr. Jackson in. The defendant, I don't care. The court, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. That's the defendant. Um, reminds me of a, a five-year-old. Right. I... <laughs> the defendant, I need a microphone. Or a two-year-old, I need a microphone. The court, I do not have a microphone. The defendant, you can get one, judge. The court, let's go. The defendant, I need a microphone, judge. The court, I'm sorry. The defendant, you're sorry? And it goes on and on and on. He just wants to be heard. Of course Um, he does. And then finally, um, he complains about not having counsel of his choice. And he wants a microphone and counsel of his choice. And he throws his little hissy fit. And then he gets uh, Mr. McGill. And this is another interesting thing. Someone who is bound and determined to kill Abu Jamal, even though he knows he's innocent. Abu Jamal is throwing his hissy fit, having his temper tantrum. And Mr. McGill says, all right, Judge, I made a request the jury leave the room so that we can conduct the proceedings at this point out of the hearing of the jury. Uh, most, of the, most of the exchange has been at sidebar, although it sounds like it started while, they were at the, while Abu Jamal was at the defense table. Right. Um, but he's looking out not to prejudice Abu Jamal. So um, they get they let the jury out of the room. It goes on and on and on, and then finally, I think uh, Wayne and William are in the audience because another problem during a lot of Judge Ribner's hearings, people in the audience, and they were Abu Jamal's people. They were causing disturbances. There was one point where they were outside the courtroom causing disturbances in the hallway. And either Judge Sable or Judge Ribner had to have him removed from the hallway. I mean, this is, you know, the system against him. And yet, from what I've seen and what I've read, you know, the only stacked deck was against the court, the judge, the prosecutor, the victim's family. Because these people were taunted and and abused uh, during the course of the trial by Abu Jamal supporters. And uh, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to print out some of these tirades and tantrums and Hissy fits, as I like to call them, and I'm going to scan them into a PDF document and post them on the WordPress page. 
because, you know, like I said, the, the entire first day of trial was spent with Abu Jamal having a tantrum because he wasn't getting what he wanted. And, you know, the also the move and Abu Jamal, <clears throat> they have this uh, annoying habit of saying, I'm not disrupting the proceedings, there's no disruption, when that's all you've done for two hours. Right. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Um, And then a lot of people, like I said, during the course of the trial, during hearings, people had to be removed from the courtroom. And they were not the victim's family members. Mm -hmm. So um, that is, uh, like I said, hissy fits and temper tantrums and that is what led to uh, the judge deciding that he couldn't represent himself because he could not follow courtroom decorum and he was trying to disrupt the proceedings he may not believe that's what he was doing because he's warped uh, but that is what he was doing Something is seriously wrong with it. That's all I can say. Well, and again, he hurt himself. It's a lot like Charles Manson. You know, Charles Manson said, I didn't do anything. I didn't tell anybody to do anything. I didn't have any control over, over anybody. I was crazy Charlie, and they just took care of me. And yet, if he scratched his chin, the girls jumped up out of their seats and recited a song he wrote or recited a statement about how unfair the system was to him. So, um, you know, he was only hurting himself. And, uh, you know, in the long run, the jury saw this. And so, you know, it, it did not make a good impression upon them. Oh, I can imagine it didn't. <clears throat> so they, the first day is pretty much a bust. Right. Uh, because he's not going to let them proceed, so they adjourn. And, um, of course, you know, the judge says to Mr. McGill, you're not going to let him, he's not going to let you proceed. And Jamal, of course, has to say, you're not letting me proceed. So, um, yeah. So the there were several instances like this over the course of the trial, and Abu Jamal did have to be removed from the courtroom. Yeah, I'm sure he did. And Anthony Jackson was put in his place. So we get to the prosecution case on the mm. second day, I believe. Um. And, you know, the prosecution case, again, we've got, we've got an almost exact timeline 
because we've got the dispatch tapes, which are time-coded. Right. Um, And then we've got four eyewitnesses at the scene who observed some or all of the encounter between Cook, Officer Faulkner, and Abu Jamal. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the prosecution has that. We've got the first responding officers who got to the scene within 70 seconds of the shooting. And Abu Jamal at the scene shot in the chest. Ballistics shows that the bullet recovered from his chest was from Daniel Faulkner's weapon. We've got witnesses who heard gunshots both from Abu Jamal and Daniel Faulkner. Right. We've got Abu Jamal's gun in his name with ammunition consistent with ammunition that he possessed. Um, The ballistics, I think we talked about it a little bit, Um, the shot to the back was a through and through, and I believe they did recover some slugs from surrounding buildings that apparently missed, but... um, they were all too deformed because he used a high-velocity plus-P ammunition, which is designed to have the to do the most damage because when they impact, they mushroom uh-huh. and deform. And so you don't have a pristine bullet or even a full bullet. You have a a mangled slug that's all that's left and probably, you know, fragments in the wounds. So um, they did recover a uh, they did recover a slug from Daniel Faulkner's Head, which while it was not in a condition that permitted them to directly compare test fire bullets, they were able to compare it enough to see land and groove characteristics that were consistent with Abu Jamal's gun. And they may have had to say it was consistent with that brand, which was a Charter Arms, 38 caliber. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the, I guess the the individual characteristic from the firing pin, like the barrel makes the lands and grooves, as I recall. And that is consistent from 
model to model, caliber to caliber. Mm-hmm. So 38, the Charter Arms 38 was, you know, two lands and eight grooves with the right twist. That's from the barrel. But I think the what's unique in ballistics is the mark from the firing pin. Mm-hmm. If I recall correctly. And so that, if you have a full bullet, say you have um, you have a through-and-through that isn't deformed that lodges in a tree. And you can pull it out, and you know you've got tissue on it, and it's a complete bullet. You can test fire, and I think the firing pin is what provides the unique characteristic that you can say this bullet came from that gun. True. (laughs) Because I know in ballistics they can, under certain circumstances, they can test fire and say that a question bullet came from that gun. Because there's something that makes a mark that's like a fingerprint. But anyway, mm-hmm. moving on. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and then they also have the admissions. And the witnesses were thoroughly cross-examined about discrep- discrepancies between their descriptions, among their descriptions, you know, one witness, I think Cynthia White said Jamal was wearing a hat, and he wasn't wearing a hat. One witness said he was wearing a gray shirt, and he wasn't wearing a gray shirt. Those, All those issues were brought before the jury. Anthony Jackson did uh, did do a good job. I think he played along with Abu Jamal's strategy to a degree mm-hmm. more because he was doing what his client was instructing him to do, but he did, uh, he did, you know, thoroughly cross-examine witnesses and bring up all the credibility and reliability issues before the jury. Um, so that was pretty much the prosecution's case. Abu Jamal didn't really offer much of a defense. Uh-huh. He offered a bunch of character witnesses who said um, that uh, he was a peaceful man and they can't believe he would do this and he was a gifted writer and he was a gifted radio presenter and you know he was never violent and but that's not really going to uh, – it's not going to refute testimony from a witness who at a preliminary hearing on the motion to suppress, rather, uh, the hearing on the motion to suppress said, I saw you do it, buddy. It was you. I saw you shoot him. So uh, – the uh, jury ended up convicting him. 
of first-degree murder and possession of an instrument of crime. Uh-huh. And um, that was... Then they did the they did the uh, excuse me the penalty phase, and we've actually we're getting close to running out of time tonight. Uh, on the penalty phase, uh, they basically Abu Jamal got up on the stand and he wanted to do what's this, what's called allocution, where you make a statement on the record, but nobody asks you any questions. Okay. And it didn't go his way. Uh, the judge did let him, I think the judge warned him that he was going to be cross-examined, but he elected to go ahead and make the statement anyway. And then the judge got to cross-examine him. And during that time, as well as during the defense case, his uh, Black Panther history and some of his uh, ideology were discussed. But that's the chance you take, especially again, you can't give you can't put witnesses on to say you're a kind, peaceful man who loves puppies and farts rainbows when you have that dark past of someone right. who you know repeats Mao Zedong's uh, philosophy of power comes out of the barrel of a gun that's not a statement you know you should if you're going to portray yourself as a peaceful man you better hope you've quoted Gandhi somewhere right. in your life <laughs> Because Huey Newton and Mao Zedong were not were not peaceful men, right? Uh, they did not turn the other cheek. They blew the bastard up. Oh no, and it doesn't sound so, like they were peaceful either. No, they want to portray themselves as peaceful and just, you know, just wanting to save the earth and the water and the air and but you know, they really aren't. They they uh because they do threaten people. And right. you know, I I I was watching one video, uh this was I think after uh Jamal lost one of his later post-conviction claims and um, he uh, he Pam Africa I think her name was is there she wants to go you know punch Joseph McGill in the face and punch the current DA in the face and uh, you know just beat everybody who doesn't believe that Mumia Abu-Jamal should come home and uh so, by the way, uh, Wes, uh, Wayne and William, interestingly, William is in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, during one of, after Abu Jamal was removed or threatened with removal, uh, there is in the gallery, 
someone calls out, this is a fucking railroad, I say. What are you trying to do here? A second spectator says, what is this? Um, Someone tried to calm them down. And the court ordered them to be arrested. And then Mr. Uh McGill identifies William Cook and Wayne Cook. So interestingly, on the second day of trial, William Cook is in the courtroom. During the defense case, no William Cook. Real. Yeah. So uh, Abu Jamal was uh, was sentenced to death by the jury. Uh, I'll get I'll get a little bit more information into that next week. I think we're gonna I think we're gonna call it here. Okay. And we'll go into the appeal, the direct appeal, and uh, we'll start talking about the uh, PCRA process, which is post-conviction relief in Pennsylvania. Uh, we'll we'll go into that next week. Okay. Sounds good. We'll so, wrap things up. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week on Tuesday, April 30th, 2019 for Part 3 of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Wesley Cook, also known as Mamiya Abu-Jamal. We'll begin with a discussion of, of Abu-Jamal's direct appeal after his 1982 conviction for first-degree murder and sentence of death. Then we'll talk about his numerous post-conviction challenges, including a discussion of the claims of new evidence and witnesses who, according to advocates for Abu Jamal, have undermined the proof against him offered at his trial. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.